to Touch Heaven Canfield Church. Those are here. Those are online. If you've just tuned in to some of you because you're in different time zones, welcome. It's good to have you be part of our wider church. And uh, for those who are catching up on this, I know there's many of you who tell me that, you know, you get on YouTube and you watch this another day this week. Welcome as well. I want to thank you for uh, just being you and being here. It means so much. It's so encouraging. And let us just cover in prayer because I'm about to share something with you that's common but yet probably radical in your faith. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you, Lord. Help us by your Holy Spirit to reach deep into truths and understand. Help us, Father, to be those who aren't satisfied with just licking some icing off of the dessert, but that, Father, we want to come for the full-bodied meal. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, Father, that we've come to ask you to provoke us with a passion to know you more and to understand you more and to put that into our hearts and our spirits. Thank you, Father, for the firm foundation of the Word of God. And we ask you now, Lord, to embellish us by your Spirit with fresh revelation that, Lord, we can continue to grow upon. Be blessed, Father. Let everything be according to you and your word and your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we said it, we prayed it, we believe it. The world needs Messiah. And in that instance, we've been ourselves pursuing that understanding of what it means to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So this is the second part of a series that started last week, but it's also part of what we call foundational in this ministry and our outreach is to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And uh, I make no apologies about that passion. That was what I was called for in 1980 and I didn't even understand it. It's what's been reaffirmed and affirmed and now is resonating from heaven to earth. As everything's manifesting, both in darkness and in light, both in nations, pestilence and famine and diseases, but also in what we know and we understand as some restoration and reformation. There's a lot of work to be done because we know he's coming back for a bride. And we know that that's not a half of a bride, but it's a bride that is consisting of both Jews and Israelites, and I don't like using the word Gentile because it typically in that use that it was used for in that day meant heathen. So those who aren't born or a culture of Jews that believe in Jesus are not heathen. It's believers. And so there's going to be emerging, emerging of the call and the promise of God to his Jewish people, and then the merging 
of the bride and the body of Christ becoming one bride. One bride. There's only two people in the Word of God where he calls his bride. One is the body of Christ and the church, and the other one is Israel, and I'm talking about Israel, born-again, believing Jews, that he says, who gave you a writ of divorcement? Not me. That means he tells us, just like he told Hosea, take the unfaithful bride. Be an example for me. So we have a lot to understand, and as I was dwelling and asking for enlightenment, headed into what is called the nativity. You know, we celebrate Christmas, and we've all agreed and understood it's almost impossible for it to really be December 25th. It's a different time, most likely a harvest time, most likely a time in the spring could be there as well, but not the dead of winter. Um, it was a different time, but it doesn't matter because we're happy that the whole world takes a pause and celebrates Jesus Christ. I'd be okay if it was declared every month on the 25th of January, February, March. I'm fine with that. I don't care if you have a tree or you don't have a tree. I'm fine with that. What I'm concerned about, and you are as well, is that we glorify Jesus Christ. So we're in that season of Advent, we know that he's coming very soon, and that prophetic hourglass has been tipped over in heaven, and the sands of time have been pouring out on the earth from heaven now for a couple thousand years. And we understand that the day's coming soon when the sound of the trumpet of God is going to blast in the heavenly places. And the command's going to come. Interesting, it's called a command. The command's going to come for the Messiah, there's only one who can give the command, and that's the Father. The Son says, Jesus himself, I don't know the hour and the time. It's only unto the Father. So the Father will give the command, and the Messiah shall come. We'll deal with that some more in some detail, because it's something we should understand. And something else I've been dealing with, I ask a lot of questions as I dig Something else I've been dealing with just to whet your appetite for the future is what's the world going to be like when Messiah comes on earth? Not too many people talk about that. We get hints, we get some understanding in the scriptures. You have to put about 70 of them all together and weave them into one rope to really begin to get a glimpse. But there's a social impact, there's a political impact, there's a religious impact, there's an economic impact. There's an impact for children. There's an impact for animals. I could go on and on. It's very comprehensive because when he comes, he comes with the spirit of restitution. We'll get into that later. But for now, I want to deal with something that we take for granted. We celebrated those of us. I mean, even before I knew Jesus Christ, that was back in the day when you were allowed to have little plays at school and there would be the nativity scene in the public school. And I would watch it and we all came to know it and I always sang in a choir here or there. So I would even sing some of the songs and we'd see the little baby and... We'd see the three wise guys that got called over. And 
we'd see Mary and Joseph. Typically, in my school, it was always a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Joseph and a very un-Jewish-looking Mary. <laughs> but we all got the sense that there was this little baby, Jesus. Now, the knowledge of some people, that's as far as it gets. Even people that are church attending is the baby Jesus at Christmas. And then there's a whole lapse of information and zeal and passion, and it fast-forwards to Easter to when the baby's a full-grown 33-and-a-half-year-old man and he's sacrificed on the cross. And typically, too, that is just a cursory understanding for many who, if you ask them what their faith is, they would say Christian. They don't really understand the depth of what that was, but it all starts way, way, way back with Adam. And there's a thread that weaves all the way through. But one significant thing needed to happen. And that significant thing is that there needed to be God incarnate in man. Now, incarnate means that the indwelling, the entity of God in the flesh. I'm sure you know, but in case you don't, there are other religions that claim some kind of incarnation. We all know there's one that says reincarnation. You might reincarnate as a bug, as an animal, as a frog, as a cow. And there's other ones that have incarnation that come and go. And there's almost a swapping in some universal type of aura. But we understand the real incarnation. The real incarnation is that the Son of God came as man in the flesh. Let's get into that a moment, because as we dwell into it, I would pray that just maybe you'll be provoked a little bit more, even as I am. Before we can deal with the incarnation, it's appropriate for us to deal with sin. Let's talk about sin for a moment. Original sin, if you will, as well. Original sin really is a concept that's not quite clarified like that in Scripture. So it's a doctrine. And I always hesitate to label and teach things that are doctrine that I don't have a scriptural name for. But I can tell you that in the sense of what it talks about, it has applicability. What I want to take us to first and foremost is to Psalms 51 verse 5. And in this scripture, we have the psalmist crying out. And we're going to have many scriptures this morning because it will give you the platform that you need to get to the final revelation. I believe as it hits, it's going to be a spiritual pop in your, in your heart. Psalm 51 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's that tell us? 
Well, it tells us that this was a little baby who had never sinned in flesh consciously, but yet was brought forth in a sin state. Now, that's a hard thing to grasp. It's hard to grasp that somebody or something can be so innocent, but yet be born in sin. But it's not hard to grasp when we really dive in and understand it better. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely... Hello? The day you eat of it you shall surely... You're going to tie-dye your sweatshirt? You're going to change the color? No, you're going to... Die in what? Sin. Not physical. They lived. Adam and Eve lived. But the day that they ate of the tree of good and evil, it wasn't so much the good that got them, it was the evil. Right? Because today, believe it or not, you're eating of the tree of good. Hmm? The branch? Righteousness? You're grafted in? You're grafted into a tree, a tree of righteousness, a tree of good. Come on. You're getting some good stuff now. I get really good and I can be motivated when I begin to hear something. Right? So it wasn't the good that got him. It was the evil. And so what happened, an evil consciousness came upon them that they never had before. They didn't have to discern between good and evil because there was no evil. But all of a sudden... They died. Adam and Eve died. And when we look at the psalmist, we understand, and that was a long time after Adam and Eve, a couple thousand years. A couple thousand years later, the psalmist prophetically says, I was born in iniquity from my mother's womb. So we know there's a transference. There's a, a sin state that transfers with the human soul. Because who's the keeper of the soul? The Father, the Lord. And he warned him, if you eat of this evil, you're going to die. You're going to have a sin consciousness. You're going to have a sin state of being. And he knew there needed to be a remedy. As we look at it further, we also understand prior to that, we had a code, which you and I have discussed before, and it's a code of understanding creation and procreation. Procreation meaning that once God created a bird, that bird brought forth the same kind of bird. Let every kind bring forth its own kind. Fish brought forth fish. They didn't evolve from fish into a monkey and from a monkey into a man. We understand that. Each kind brings forth its own kind. We've understand a lot of times when kinds get mixed with kinds, they don't live. They don't make it. Right? We've discussed sheep and goats. Everybody thinks they're the same. They're not the same genus. They're different. Sheep have 54 chromosomes. Goat have 60. 54 plus 6 equals a goat. Jesus says the goats I cast off to one side. The sheep I keep on the other. Six, the number of flesh that hasn't been reborn. Let every kind bring forth its own kind. 
So the kind of sinful nature brings forth what? Sinful nature. The kind of born again brings forth what? Born again. John 5.15, pray for that soul that has not sinned the soul unto death, and I will give you that person. That's coming from the heart of somebody who has the power of born again inside of them, and they're speaking life into somebody who doesn't have it. And it's if somebody who's like kin to you, why? Because God always honors his word, and he established way back in the law of Moses, kinsman redemption. So John got it, he understood it, he got the revelation from the Holy Spirit, and he said, you pray as the kinsman redeemer for your loved ones, and God will give you that soul. If they have not sinned the sin unto death. Now we're not going to get into the sin unto death, but not as many people have as they think they have. I'm always somewhat comically but tragically touched when someone comes up to me and says, oh, I think maybe I sinned the sin unto death. <laughs> if you have a consciousness and a heart and you're sensitive to it, you have not sinned the sin unto death. Because the person that sends the sin unto death no longer is even sensitive to the things of God. So every kind brings forth its own kind. So we're establishing a pattern, a culture, a doctrine, an understanding. So yes, there's that concept and doctrine of original sin because it goes back to the original sin. Right? And in that instance, we also understand that the writer of Romans pointed out to us that there's a reason for there needing to be a man in the flesh to deal with original sin. Let's go to, well, let's stop before we do that. Let's go to Romans 3, verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. For all, help me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many? Is that the same as everyone? Yes, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, Pastor Frank, I don't know if I like that religion. Well, I like that one better because it has a way out than I like the other ones that don't. I like the one that's honest and says, we're all sinners until we're saved. And once we're saved, we're no longer sinners. I don't like a religion that says, I'm still a sinner after I'm saved. That one doesn't do well with me, because you can't be both. You can't be a sinner and be saved. Now, yes, our flesh still saves, but there's a way, and there's a price that's been paid. And if you are not practicing sin, you're not a sinner, right? Right? And so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, now that we're dealing with the original sin doctrine, let's talk a little bit about the first birth of Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus had been born in the traditional manner of a union with a man and a woman, with the seed coming from the man and the egg coming from the woman, and 
They come together and become impregnated in the womb of the woman. Now we understand that he would have been born into sin. Just like the rest of mankind. And since the fall of mankind, originally with Adam and Eve, all have been born into sin. All have a sin state. Is anybody having a hard time with that? It's okay if you are, you'll, you'll get it. <laughs> all, once you establish some of these points, some of these absolutes in your faith, you'll see your faith just go like this. So we deal with questions and we resolve them. We satisfy them. We establish them in the word of God. That's how we grow from a faith to a, from a strength to a, from a glory to a, amen. We establish things and we grow from those things. So what we're doing is establishing absolutes. But we know that Jesus, because of what we've already seen so many times and what we celebrated this morning, the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary. And we understand that the seed that was put into Mary had nothing, listen to me, had nothing to do with the seed of man or the egg of woman. It was the next man, Adam. But this one created from the Father, not from the dust. As I pondered that, I realized that it was very appropriate that the Lord gave us that graphic understanding of how he took from the dirt and the dust of the earth that he had created and separated from the heavens and the earth and the firmaments and we had this world, he created out of that world came Adam. But he breathed life into that man that he created. But in this instance, in this instance, the one who breathed life became life in the womb of Mary. And because of that, this life that was man, God incarnate, was sinless. No sin passed on from the mother, no sin passed on from a father. Sinless. Are you there? Okay, hang with me. You're saying, Pastor, I think this is basic. I don't know. I said, well, okay, good for you. Hold on. Now, we then understand that because Jesus was not the union of a man and a woman, he came into this earth as sinless. But then it was important that he remained sinless. And so we understand from our scriptures that he was tempted just like we are. We understand from our scriptures that he understands everything that we have to overcome, not only because he overcame it spiritually and is the great I am and knows your past, present, and future and every one of us at once and is in all of that, but because he became a human being. Now, yes, let's be clear about his gender. His gender was male. But that doesn't mean that it has anything different to do than the species which is man. 
both male and female. He came. He came that there would no longer be a division of male and female, Jew nor Greek. But we need to be clear in understanding that there's no mixing of genders in the one who creates. In this instance, we know that he was not born into sin and he never sinned throughout his entire life. And we get those scriptures through Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5. I'm just reading them in for those who want to study on their own. Hebrews 4.15. But I want to go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a foundational scripture for this ministry. I quote it often. Because I want to underline a word. For he made him who knew no sin stop. Who made who? The Father made the Son. Stop a moment. The Father gave life to the Son in the Holy Spirit. The Father made the Son to be sin. Do you understand that the Father and our Lord constantly fulfills His Word? Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. So it was necessary, come on now, it was necessary that there be a high priest who was ordained and was commissioned and recognized according to the law of the Father to be able to impart the sins of the people upon the Lamb. Oh, we remember there used to be that lamb that was, you know, that poor thing would come in and they'd lay their hands on that lamb and they'd send it out and they'd send it to the wilderness to get killed. This was different. The father was the only one who could lay the sins of all the people as the high priest upon the son. Not Herod, not Pilate, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not even Jesus himself. Father, why have you forsaken me? The Father put his hand upon the head of the Lamb of God and laid the sins of the world upon him. Because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whomsoever shall call upon his name shall not perish. So we see, we see that it was the Father who made Jesus, who had never sinned, to be, to be what? We then begin to understand sin isn't just the commission or the omission of doing something. Sin is a nature. Sin is a state of being. Sin goes deep and dives into your very soul, your spirit, the very being of all you are. Paul said, in him I live and move and have my being. But in sin, the sinner also lives and moves and has their being in sin. There's no separating of the being of a human person. The being of a human person has three, three entities, correct? The spirit, the soul, which is your mind and emotions and your body. Made in the image of God, three persons. But those three can't be separated. There's no such thing as your soul leaving your body at night in bed and doing some soul 
traveling around the universe. If somebody's doing that, come talk to me. We'll fix that up real quick. And so there was a sin state, a nature that was put upon Jesus Christ. But unlike nobody else, because he was sinless and was God, and because he could transcend time, and he could go past present and future, we understand that he took the sins of the whole world even before you were born. He was in your present, he was in the past, he's in the future for all people, so that whomsoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. He took all the sins, both sinners that aren't saved and aren't going to be saved, and sinners who are saved. He took it all. He took it all, and that's the tragedy of people that die in sin. I just heard yesterday, two days ago, from a very dear friend of mine about a a man whose brother begged him to receive the Lord as he was dying last week, and he said no. If you don't get it on your deathbed, my God. But to be sin for us, to be sin for us, he was made the sin nature because God's law prevails. He became the kinsman redeemer for you and I because God's laws prevails. There must be a kinsman redeemer, and who better the redeemer than the one by whom things all, all things are created? Huh? He's your cousin. He's your brother. He's your blood. It's Jesus Christ. That we, 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 everybody, the body, that we might become, uh uh-oh, 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 become is active. Become means something that's future transitive. It's a future tense active. That I'm going to become something, I'm going to go somewhere, right? I'm going to eat something, I'm going to be something, I'm going to become, you're going to become the righteousness. Whoa, 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 whoa. That means you're just going to be a good person. It means that, you know, um, you're going to make good decisions. It's going to mean that, you know, you're not going to do the things you used to do just because you're going to do the right things now. No, it's not about things. It's about person. And it's about nature. There's a sin nature that is eliminated and replaced and transformed with a righteousness nature. And what is that righteousness nature? Is it of a faith? Is is it of a doctrine? Hmm? Is it of a special denomination? Is it of... It's the very nature of God himself. And it's the nature, listen to me, it's the nature of the Father. Our team just came back from Africa, and when we met, and we decided how we were going to approach that, the one thing that we knew we needed to do was to impart to our pastors and leaders and church over there was the heart of the Father. Because it all starts with the heart of the Father. And Jesus' entire ministry, everything he points to and did then and does now is to please the Father. Because it's all about the Father and his family. The father wanted a bigger family. He wanted his family back. What father wouldn't go after their child? The father wanted him back. 
So you have become not something. You haven't become entitled to something. You actually are righteousness. Righteousness, listen to me, incarnate. Because the one who never sinned and became sin, who was God in the flesh, not impregnated of an egg and a seed, but of God himself, actually Jesus, just like he was in heaven and is now, in the womb, growing to, from a baby to a man, just like we do as a species now, he came as righteousness, he sustained as righteousness, he died as sin, but he resurrected as righteousness. And because of that, there was a transfer. And the sinful state of all mankind received a pardon and an opportunity to become in him in righteousness. I've got to speed up. I'm only going to be able to touch on this. You know, to me, it's more important to get a good foundation than it is to just give a message. I can't help myself. Those who know me, they say, you know, you're a teacher. I, I, call me whatever you want. I can't help myself. But what I'm putting you through is what I put myself through. Everything I'm sharing with you, some of it I knew, some of it I had to renew, some of it I had to put the points together, but I labored in it so that I would get all the points, and I don't accept anything that I cannot ground in the Word of God. So sometimes there's a lot of shifting in the Scriptures. And then when I find that one contradiction, it's like, oh, yucky! We got to start all over again on that, or how does that fit, or why doesn't that fit, or why was that said, and was that just something of the time? I, I told you, and I'll tell you again, I still have some bones to pick with a few people when I get to heaven. You know, I have a lot of respect for Paul, but I'm still not getting his thing about women. I'm just not getting it. And I think maybe it came more from the fact that he was womanless, and I don't know where it came from, but he didn't quite get it. But yet when he wanted to get it, he got it. Right when the two women were helping him, and when they were sewing tents, and when he was leaving them to be his missionaries, he got it. I'll leave that one be. There's some things I just haven't been able to rationalize, but it's okay. I let him go because it, it's not going to change my faith. The Father requires ultimate perfection. The Word says, say what you will about the Father, say what you will about the Son, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit is that person that comes from the Godhead that's the most sensitive heart of God. It's as if the Lord has filleted his heart open to us and said, here, I'm giving you the best. I'm giving you all my fruits. I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you one who's going to teach you and comfort you and be with you always. Never leave you. I'm giving you one that when you're laying down, he's with you and he's praying deep things from, from you to the deep things of my heart. I'm giving you one that's so sensitive that please don't blaspheme him. Because when you blaspheme him, you hurt my heart. You hurt my heart. The precious gift of the Holy Spirit is beyond amazing. It's beyond consideration. It's, 
It's as if we're crawling into the very bosom of the Father. And guess what? That's where we are. Jesus Christ, the Word says, who's in the bosom of the Father. What did Jesus pray? Father, John 17. Let's look at it a moment. I'm going I'm to end with this one with a highlight about in, and then we'll come back. Let's go to John 17, please. And I want to get to about verse 20. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He knows it. He knows what's waiting for him. This is really the last major prayer that we know about that's shared with us. It's a prayer between he and the Father. It's an intimate prayer. It's a desperate prayer. It's a prayer where he starts out very early on. It's recorded in verse 5. Father, give me back the glory that I had with you always. He knows he's about to go and suffer for the sins of the world. He goes eyes wide open. He cries out, take this cup away from me because it's so hard to take. I mean, have you ever been accused or punished for something you didn't do? I sort of lived in that world for a while. It's my own bed, I made it. I had that reputation so when something went wrong they came and got me. But nothing like that. You can imagine how hard it was for him. Father, give me back the glory. Let me have the God stuff back when I'm deep in hell. I want the God stuff back because I'm laying it aside. I'm giving it up so that I can become the sinful nature because God stuff can't mix with sinful nature. Glory and sin don't mix. Can't have them both. Give it up. Now he's praying. He says, Father, I pray not for these alone because at that point he wanted to make sure that everybody didn't think it was just about his 11 disciples that were left. He was letting it know that this was a universal prayer, a prayer for all time, a prayer for the body of Christ, a prayer for you. He said, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those, for those who will believe in me through the word of these that go out, through the word of these who go out, through the word of these who prepare the way, through the ones who know and guide others and take them from darkness into light. I pray for them too, Father. I pray to you, my Father. Next verse. That they all may be one. One. Now that, that's foundational in the Torah and in the Word of God. Adonai, the Lord God is one. Eloheinu is the three persons, the multiple, the plural of Adonai. It's the plural God. And they're used interchangeably in Torah. Eloheinu and Adonai. So there was this inkling of an image of the three persons of God or something about it, but it just was sort of masked over. But Jesus cries out, 
Father, I pray that they all might be one. Adonai, the Lord God is one. As you, Father, listen to me, are what? Come on, come on. Are. No, no, forget the me. Are. In. Say in. As you are in. Not about, not to, not a knowledge of, not something that were a thing, but in. This is the depth of the understanding of incarnation. Christ is God incarnate, sinless. The sinless Christ is in the Father, and the Father's in Him. There's no taking them apart, they're merged. It's as if you take a bunch of sand from three different seashores and you mix it together, you won't be able to tell where the sand came from. It's sand. And it's the same with the Father and the Son. They become in. And you can't separate them. That's up to them to do, not up to us. They decide who says and does what and when. But they're in. It means that there's no differentiation. It means that it's incarnate. It means it's the same God stuff glory that was in heaven that Jesus rose from, but he doesn't leave it there. You and Father, you're in me, I'm in you, that they also may be one. What? What? That they may be one in us. It's not about having a relationship with God where He's here and Jesus is here and the Holy Spirit's here. It's a relationship, come on now, where we are in each other. The Father's in you, the Son's in you. We're in the Father, we're in the Son. Nobody can separate us. Nothing can take us away from the love of God. Nothing can change us. And because of it, because of it, we are walking in a spirit consciousness of incarnate humanity with God. Radical. Radical. Pastor Frank's getting radical again. Let it soak in. Let it soak in. You know, we a lot of talking about identity, purpose. I like all that stuff, taught it myself. But the reality of being in Christ, Christ in you, the Father in Christ, the Holy Spirit didn't come to lay outside of us and be a guide. He came in us, born again in the family of the Father, of the family of the Father, Spirit. That's why those who worship him worship him in Spirit. and in truth. truth you just got truth incarnate i hope i pray that the impact to you continues to provoke you to seek to pray that relationship in <laughs> You see, when we know we're in, we don't beg. My children 
In our house, they never had to beg to go in the refrigerator. They never had to beg to go steal my socks. They never had to beg for the things that we had in the house. You don't have to beg. It's yours. Everything in the Father's house is yours. Everything in the Father is yours. And you have right standing with Him because you are righteousness. Because the Father is righteousness. And all the other blessings, all the other spiritual attributes of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit reside in you and you in them. That's why Paul cried out in Philippians 4, I can, I can do all things through Christ, in Christ, strengthens me in his weak moment. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. If the Lord allows, I'm going to come back to it, whether it's before Christmas or after Christmas, only the good Lord knows. But I really want to, really, really, really want to go deeper with this. You know, we can just have another Christmas and go through the motions and sing about the baby in the manger. The advent that I seek for you and for me is preparing for the second coming of the Lord. Because we're grounded in the first coming. And if not us, who? You know, motivational sermons are wonderful. There's a time and place we all need one, but being grounded, being strong, knowing our plan, our purpose, who we are, and that we don't have to beg. We're not beggars. We're children. We're heirs, co-heirs, joint heirs. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Amen.